The Tom Woods Show, episode 1262. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, Bernie Sanders and the movement he inspired won't go away. But I'm going to equip you with all the information you need to smack down all those destructive arguments that would wreck society. Grab my free ebook, Bernie Sanders is Wrong, over at BernieIsWrong.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. The great Eric Peters joins me today. And I'm telling you, once you listen to one Eric Peters episode, you just got to listen to them all. The guy is so easy to listen to, so knowledgeable, such a great libertarian. I don't know of anybody else who's doing what he's doing as a commentator on the automobile industry, as somebody who loves automobiles, loves to drive, loves the experience, knows so much about them, and is committed to libertarianism. What a wonderful marriage of two interesting worlds. And that's what you get over at his website, which is ericpetersautos.com, or for short, epautos.com. He's keeping track of a lot of stories that might fall under the radar of a lot of us who don't follow the automobile industry so closely, but are interested in questions of liberty. And he really is keeping a, a hawk's eye on these sorts of things. And so from time to time, I like to bring him on and bring us up to date on what's been happening in that part of the economy and in that part of our lives as individuals and see, uh, you know, on balance, are things good or bad? So I cannot urge you enough, especially if you have any interest in cars at all, to check out epautos.com. And the thing is, even if you're not that interested in cars, you're just going to love Eric because he makes everything so darn interesting. I've had that over and over, people say, yeah, I've been tempted to skip this or that episode because it was about cars. Then I listened to Eric and I thought, I love this guy. Exactly. That's the kind of guest I am striving to bring to you on the Tom Wood Show. Eric, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. All right. It's been a while. We got to get an update on the Tesla and Elon Musk situation. I know people have read a lot of the newspapers, but uh, people are busy. Not everybody has all the details. I certainly don't. Mm -hmm. But Wow, has a lot happened since we last spoke on that front. So I know that you have not been much of a sympathizer on crony capitalism grounds. But regardless of all that, can you just give us a an overview of what's gone on? Well, he's been acting, uh, I guess, erratic is probably soft-pedaling the way that he's been acting in public, tweeting things that just seem bizarre at the very least – and legally uh, also very dangerous, as some of your listeners may be aware. He got into trouble with the SEC uh, over a tweet in which he announced that he was thinking about taking the company private, which apparently is contrary to the SEC rules. Uh, the SEC levied a $20 million fine against him and removed him as the president of the company, though he's still the CEO and he's still on the board. And rather than kind of back off from confronting the government, he's continued to make even more erratic tweets, and it's got investors in his company uh, very nervous. And that's in addition to all of the other problems with the car itself. So w what exactly is going on? So is he out now at this point? Well, he's he's kind of quasi in and out. It's it's in my opinion the whole thing's a relative wrist slap. In the first place, his net worth is estimated at nearly twenty four billion dollars. So this twenty million dollar fine, uh, it's a lot to people like you and I. But for Elon Musk, twenty million dollars is like you or I finding a, a five dollar bill under a sofa cushion. 
So it's not really a meaningful slap. And not that I favor the government slapping. I'm just making the point that the government's treating him with kid gloves as far as the financial penalty that was imposed on him. And the other penalty was that he was removed for three years from one of the two offices that he held. He was both president and CEO of the company. He's no longer the president. He is still the CEO of the company. He's still on the board. So as a practical matter, he's still in charge of the company. It was just something that the SEC did to sort of publicly convey that they are unhappy with the way he's been performing lately. So what's does this mean anything for the company? Well, it means something in terms of uh, how shareholders feel about the company. You know, a lot of people have put a lot of money into Tesla, both as investors and as people who are interested in the cars. He touts the fact that I forgot the number, but it's a, a large number of people, many thousands, tens of thousands of people have put down money on this Model 3, which is the, and I put it in air quotes, the affordable Tesla, the one that's supposed to revolutionize the business and bring this thing away from being sort of a virtue signaling car for very affluent people to a more uh, economically viable car for average people. The problem is he can't seem to produce that car. He now touts that he's, he's ramping up production of the Model 3, but that's very disingenuous, and this is a characteristic of Elon Musk. Yeah, it's true, he's building Model 3s, but he's not building the affordable one, the one that he touted was going to cost $35,000. The ones that he's building are costing closer to $50,000. Got it. Okay. So, as always, I have a whole bunch of little items from your website that I want to discuss with you. Mm -hmm. So, before we depart from Musk, what's the ultimate significance of Musk? Why does all this matter one way or the other? Well, Musk was the guy who was uh, put in charge, if you will, of the project of normalizing electric cars. Tesla's been around for about 15 years now, and it's because of Tesla, I think, that the public has been habituated to the idea that this is going to be, and I put it in all caps, the future, the electric car is the future. And he put enormous pressure on all the other car companies to make investments in these electric cars, even though there is literally almost no market demand for these things, no free market demand. Electric cars currently comprise about 1% of the total volume of new cars being built. And the only reason, for the most part, that they are being built is simply because of government edicts having to do with zero emissions mandates and also the corporate average fuel economy mandates, which are threatening to go up to more than 50 miles per gallon. And one way that car companies hope to cope with that is to introduce these electric cars into their lineup. And, of course, the electric car uses no gas. So if you have one electric car, let's say, that uses no gas, it gets infinity miles per gallon. And you have an SUV that gets, let's say, 20 miles per gallon. Well, you know, effectively, you're, you're increasing your cafe number by 50%. So that's one of the big reasons for the production of these vehicles. But there is no market for them. They're, they're loss leaders. Um, there's a term out there that I like. I can't take credit for it, but it's compliance car. That's what electric cars are. Yeah. They're manufactured to comply with government edicts, not because there is any significant real market demand for them. Well, now speaking of which, let's talk about what's going on with Mazda. This is indeed very depressing, as you say in your yeah. piece about it. Yeah, very much so. Mazda is kind of like what BMW used to be. It's a car company that really caters toward people who are enthusiastic about driving who don't see cars as just appliances that get you from A to B, but are passionate and emotional about their cars, enjoy driving them. And until quite recently, Mazda very publicly said, look, we're going to focus on internal combustion engine cars, making them more efficient, but keeping them fun, and we're not going to buy into this electric car thing. Well, uh, they just announced a couple of weeks ago a 180-degree turn on that, and they, like everybody else, have embraced the electric car thing. And again, it's because they have to. They try to put the lipstick on the pig and talk about all the virtues. 
But the reality is they don't have a lot of choice because it is the only way going forward that Mazda and all these other car companies are going to comply with all the stuff that's coming out of Washington. So does this mean that these would all be purely electric cars or are we talking about hybrids or what? Uh, we're talking about both. Um, they're going to have pure electric cars, and then they're going to have hybrid cars, the majority of which will be plug-in electric cars. And I refer to those as part-time electric cars because they differ from a conventional hybrid in that you can actually drive on just the battery. Uh, most hybrids, the hybrid part of the drivetrain is only operative when you're really not moving or not moving very fast. But these plug-ins can operate as an electric car, although for a limited range. They, they generally go between 20 and some of them 50 miles or so before the gas engine comes back on. You know, there are a lot of depressing stories on your site, and I'm afraid we're going to have to get to a couple more of them. But, And, of course, we can also talk about new cars, which is always, well, it's sometimes fun. I guess sometimes not fun mm -hmm. when you get in a new car and you realize, ah, half the fun of driving a car has been sucked out of more federal regulation. So, so that's another matter. But is there anything, as you look on the horizon, is there anything that is a positive development as far as you can see? Well, you know, the engineers are really doing almost miraculous work in terms of continuing to produce vehicles at all. Given this confluence of regulatory mandates, on the one hand, you've got the zero emissions requirements, and the other hand, you've got these CAFE requirements, and then you've got this other thing which is really oily and, and has happened over about the last two years where the fuel economy standards are being conflated with emission standards. I don't know whether you've noticed this. But they've begun to speak of things like carbon dioxide, which has never before been considered a tailpipe exhaust emission as an emission. And I think that that's very, very slippery, very dishonest. In the past, in terms of regulatory law, emissions were considered to be things like unburned hydrocarbons, particulates, and so on. The things that, that did contribute to smog, that caused health problems in people, and so on. But now they're talking about carbon dioxide, and they're categorizing that as a pollutant subject to regulation in the same way that traditional emissions have been regulated. And that's going to be the means by which they extinguish these cars and force us all into these tiny little and very expensive electric cars and plug-in hybrid cars. And the, the engineers are coping with it, but there is a limit to what engineering can do. And you know the people in Washington don't seem to comprehend that. Now, to get back to your original question, um, sorry for the long segue, the one thing that is spectacular about the time that we live in is that the horsepower being produced by the average engine and the performance that's delivered and the economy that's delivered is nothing short of stupendous. You've got family cars, for example, Toyota Camrys, you know, humdrum family sedans that make 300 horsepower that gets 60 in, in you know, five and a half, uh, less than six seconds and still get 30 plus miles per gallon on the highway. And that, that is just absolutely amazing. If, if you reference that, to the exotic cars of the 80s. The performance of family cars today is as good or better than Ferraris and Porsches uh, of the 80s. Wow, well, that is that is encouraging to hear. So, I mean, it's just the fact that we have people who are so clever that almost no matter what's thrown at them, they can somehow figure out a way still to crank out something approximating what people might still want. This is heroic. What, what surprises me is that we don't hear more howls of outrage from these people. Like, man, what do you think I am, some kind of an insane workhorse? Why are you doing this to me? Why don't we hear that? Well, actually, we do hear it, or rather, I should say, I hear it, and other journalists hear it from the engineers and from the middle-level people who are not allowed to go officially on the record and talk about it. The people who do talk about it officially for the companies, they, for politically correct reasons, talk up and tout 
electrification. They, you know, they genuflect before the god of climate change and talk about how they're going to address it and various other things, too, that have absolutely nothing to do with cars or engineering, such as diversity, which, of course, makes my teeth ache, as you know. So let's say a little something, though, about what's going on with motorcycles now, Mm -hmm. because you have a piece where you say up to now, motorcycles have kind of managed to evade a lot of the hysteria about safety and regulation, but it looks like that may not be the case for much longer. Right. Unfortunately, uh, motorcycles sort of were able to fly under the radar and not be subject to that much in the way of government regulations. As, as recently as the early 2000s, most bikes didn't have any significant emissions controls. Most of them still had carburetors. Now uh, the government is turning its attention to bikes, and uh, most of them do have a lot of these elaborate emissions controls, which is one reason why they're becoming more expensive. But the really alarming thing to me is that they're starting to talk about imposing these safety mandates. I always say it that way to kind of ridicule it on motorcycles, including car-like technologies, such as mandatory anti-lock brakes, traction and stability control, and believe it or not, even airbags. Uh, One bike already has an airbag available optionally, and that's the Honda Goldwing. I'd like to know, if I may, again, I want to switch gears here because I actually know nothing about motorcycles. So so, uh, that was just because I just felt like for the sake of completeness, people need to know that the bad guys are coming for the motorcycles. But but what interests me also is your piece called Big Truck, Little Engine. And you're talking Mm -hmm. about this madness of putting a four-cylinder engine Mm -hmm. in a full-size truck. Now, I can tell when I'm driving because I rent a lot of cars because I travel a lot. So I rent a lot of cars. And I can always – when I rent a car, I – yeah, I confess, uh, Eric, I, I don't indulge my love for driving. I indulge my cheapskate nature. I yeah, want well, the, me too. Sure. It's an yeah. appliance at that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that is when it's an appliance, right? It's not part of my lifestyle. I just, I genuinely just want to get from A to B. And so I can tell when I'm trying to merge on the highway and I can't get any mm-hmm. pickup. I realize, oh yeah, it's yeah. a rental car, right? Yeah. But I can't imagine driving like that with a with a big truck. But first of all, for dummies like me who use these terms, but we secretly have absolutely no idea what they really mm-hmm. mean, what does a four-cylinder or X-cylinder engine, what does that actually mean? What are the cylinders and what are they doing? I'm sorry for being so dumb. but Oh, well, no, it's not dumb. It's just a basic terminology. A given internal combustion engine will have a number of cylinders. It can be one cylinder. They make one cylinder engines, not in cars, but they are made all the way up to, for example, a a 12 cylinder engine. You know, you find those in exotic high performance cars. So, you know, each cylinder contains a piston. The piston goes up and down. Uh, The up and down movement is translated into forward motion uh, through the drivetrain of the car. It's pretty simple. And generally, the more cylinders you have, the, the larger the displacement of the engine. So the more air and fuel is being processed and the more power is being created. So, Generally speaking, the larger the engine, the more power that you're getting out of that engine. All right. So there you go. I mean, obviously, I got the gist of it, but I don't really know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about here. But but I know what driving feels like with different types of engines. Now, I don't think I've – I think I've only driven a full-size truck maybe once or twice. I just don't ever have any need to. Mm-hmm. But I'm reading in your piece that Chevy is planning to put a four-cylinder mm-hmm. in the 2019 Silverado – Yep, And then we're seeing also that Ford is going to go down the same road with the uh, F-150 in 2019. Yep. And then you point out that the after all this, you think, well, at least maybe the one silver line, at least we get something out of this, is that there's better gas mileage. Mm-hmm. But the gas mileage improvement is trivial to non-existent. That's right. That's right. Well, it's trivial from the standpoint of the owner. If you or I bought the vehicle – 
you're looking at about a three mile per gallon difference with this new four cylinder engine versus the V8 that you can still get in the vehicle. And so you scratch your head and say, well, why would Chevy go to all this trouble? Because a turbocharged engine is much more complicated than an engine without a turbocharger. To get a three mile per gallon difference, what's the point of that? Well, the point gets back to that issue we talked about a moment ago about the compliance car. Corporate average fuel economy is figured on a corporate basis, meaning all of the the models that a given manufacturer makes. They add all that up, and there's a big formula that they use to calculate what the CAFE number is. And if the overall CAFE number falls below whatever the statutory mandatory minimum is, then these fines, these gas guzzler fines, are added to the price of the vehicle and that makes the vehicle less competitive in the market. So this three miles per gallon, it's not a lot for you or I, but if you're talking about a very popular vehicle like that 1500 Chevy, a full-size truck, uh, they sell a lot of those trucks. And if you talk about, let's say, 100,000 vehicles in a year and factor that three mile per gallon increase, then it does matter, and then it makes sense. So that's the only reason for all this stuff. Meanwhile, apparently, the ethanol people just won't stop You'd think maybe we had reached some kind of equilibrium with that. But now you're saying that up to now, there's been a limit to how much your gas could be adulterated with this stuff. Mm -hmm. But that now that percentage is going to increase from 10 to 15. Mm -hmm. And and this is... This is coming directly from Trump himself, who in other areas, yeah, yeah. people have, have looked to as somebody who might give some regulatory relief to the, uh, well, at least to automobiles. Well, when it comes to ethanol, this is one of the biggest crony con things going on. There's something called the Renewable Fuels Standard, and it was a law that was passed at the behest of the ethanol lobby, which forces refiners uh, and everybody involved in selling motor fuels to incorporate a certain percentage of so-called renewable fuels into their mix. When it comes to gasoline, the renewable is ethanol, which is made out of corn, corn alcohol. That brings us to the farm states, and it brings us to one state in particular, Iowa. And this, <laughs> this is why Trump, and not just Trump, but every politician has to genuflect, bend knee, uh, to appease the people in that state because of its political importance. So now, and it's ironic, and I'll tell you why in a minute, they're talking about pushing uh, 15% ethanol into the fuel supply. Generally, it's, it's 10% now. And there's, the irony of that is that we are now on track to be energy independent in terms of oil production in this country. And in fact, if current production continues, my understanding is that within five years from now, the United States will be a net exporter of oil. There's absolutely no reason to produce this ethanol, which is more expensive to produce in the first place. And in the second place, it's less efficient. Ethanol contains about two-thirds less energy per gallon than gasoline does. So when you burn it in your car's engine, guess what? You don't go as far on a gallon of ethanol-adulterated fuel as you would with a gallon of regular gasoline. And – of course, it has a terrible reputation among drivers. You never hear any driver who's enthusiastic about it. If The next one you hear will be the first. Well, you wouldn't because your car will get noticeably worse mileage in the first place. And in the second place, if you own a car that was made before roughly the early 2000s that isn't what they call flex fuel capable, that means it was not designed to handle high concentrations of alcohol in the fuel. And if you read your owner's materials and your warranty documents, it will warn you, do not use any fuel that has more than 10% ethanol in it, or you risk significant damage to the engine and your warranty will be void. Yeah, so uh, that's not exactly a selling point. So having said all this, I now want to ask you, given that we are 
at the, you know, more or less the end of the year, or mid-October now. And I know you get the opportunity to test drive new cars and even just to research and learn about new cars. And I always ask you, what is catching your eye? And your eye can be caught for different reasons, a, a good bargain or a really powerful car or a smooth ride or, or whatever. Give me a couple of categories and tell me what you think we ought to look out for in 2019. Well, I think we're going to see more widespread adoption of turbochargers, which used to be highly specialized. It's a power adder. A turbocharger pressurizes an engine. It forces more air and then fuel into the engine to make more power. And historically, turbos have been used to enhance the power uh, of an already powerful engine, usually in a high-performance car or a sporty car or a luxury sport car. But turbos are being now used in engines in all sorts of cars in order to get more power out of these smaller engines. So that's good on the one hand. You know, you will have the same power or comparable power to what you experienced and were used to in the past, but you do have the additional complexity of that turbocharger and very possibly not as great longevity and durability down the road. We won't know for a number of years until these vehicles have been in circulation for a long time in real-world conditions how they survive as daily drivers out there every single day putting around in traffic and and all of that. So it's a real gamble. Nobody exactly knows what's going to happen. That's one thing. You're also seeing some really interesting technological uh, solutions to some of these problems. I recently test drove a new Volvo XC60, and in addition to a turbocharger, it also offers a supercharger, if you can imagine that. So you have an engine with both a turbo and a supercharger to complement each other, to build power and be efficient at the same time. But again, this, this stuff is really elaborate and really expensive, and I wonder you know, down the road what this is all going to mean. Cars continue to get more and more expensive. I think the figure is $35,000 was the average price paid for a new car last year. And that's the main reason why new car loans are now pushing seven and even eight years. And there is a limit to that because cars are fundamentally appliances. They depreciate, and after a period of time, their value begins to really plummet, and it's dangerous to get into the position where you owe more on this car than it's worth, and that's happening to more and more people, and I think that trend's going to get worse in the coming years. So can you give us actual examples of cars that you like? Oh, there are a lot of cars that I like. Uh, I really like what they've done with um, – there's a – Kia's got a car called the Stinger, uh, which is a new luxury sports sedan that's just come out. Oh, and, yeah, I haven't heard of it or seen it. Well, it's first of all, and this is this is just me, uh, you know, Mad Max Road Warrior fan. Uh, I, I love rear-wheel drive cars, and I love uh, I love powerful sports sedans. Wait a minute, wait, 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 can you back up? Why I, I didn't I don't get that. What is hmm? this, again going to show how little I know about cars? Okay. What would there be to prefer about a rear-wheel drive car? Well, rear-wheel drive cars are better balanced than front-wheel drive cars, and in a front-wheel drive car, you have the engine and the transmission all on top of the front wheel, so they're very nose-heavy. That's good for traction. Uh, it's good for a family car. It's helpful in the rain. It's helpful in the snow. But if you're a performance enthusiast and you like a car that handles exceptionally well, particularly at very high speeds, a rear-wheel drive car will be better balanced. Also, in a front-wheel drive car, the front wheels have to do two things. They have to power the car, and they have to steer the car. In a rear-wheel drive car, the front wheels steer the car only. And the rear wheels are the wheels that put the power to the pavement. And that's, again, preferable for performance driving. And that's why most serious sports cars and almost all race cars are rear-wheel drive. Ah, as opposed to – but what about all-wheel drive? Is that still not quite right? 
No, all-wheel drive is an enhancement in both cases. There are race cars and performance cars that are all-wheel drive for just that reason. But, again, the main difference is that the preponderance of the power is directed toward the rear wheels. And the advantage is when you have the all-wheel drive system that if they begin to slip and break traction, the system then routes some of the power back to the front wheels so traction is restored so the car will accelerate more quickly. I'll give you a very specific example of that. Um, and this gets back to fun cars. Uh, earlier in the summer, I had a chance to drive both the Hellcat Challenger and uh, the Trackhawk Jeep Grand Cherokee. Are you familiar with those vehicles? Uh, I've, I've heard of them. Okay, they have the most powerful V8 that has ever been put into any kind of production car. Uh, 707 horsepower, if you can imagine. Supercharged V8. And they get to 60 in 2.9 seconds, uh, 200 miles an hour on the top, and a 12-second quarter mile, which to translate into not you know regular guy, non-car guy speak, is extremely quick and very fast. Now, what's interesting is that the Challenger is a rear-wheel drive car, and the Jeep Trackhawk, which is a Jeep Grand Cherokee, has that same engine mated to an all-wheel drive system. Now, the Challenger is extremely fast if the pavement is dry. But if it's wet, you're all over the road, and the car is borderline iffy and scary because of the fact that it's got so much power, and that power is trying to get to the pavement through those two rear wheels. The Trackhawk, on the other hand, is all-wheel drive. You can go just as quickly in that thing on a wet road as the Challenger Hellcat goes on a dry road. So you've got pretty much all-year-round, all-weather high performance in this nice big SUV, this all-wheel drive SUV, just as good as in this, this two-door muscle car, even though the Jeep weighs literally almost a 1,000 pounds more on top of everything else. So um, let me just ask before we uh, wrap up, I, I want to know mm-hmm. what would you recommend to the, the bargain hunter? Is there a good bargain out there? Well, there actually, there's a lot of good bargains, and I've got one in mind, one in particular that I think uh, your listeners might be very interested in. After two years of being holed up on lots out in the middle of nowhere, Volkswagen is selling the held-back inventory of TDI diesel-powered Jettas, Passats, and various other models. These are brand-new cars that have just been held on lots as this emissions cheating scandal has sorted itself out. These are fantastic cars. I plug Volkswagens all the time, and in particular, the, the diesel-powered versions of them. These are cars that get nearly hybrid gas mileage without all the hybrid stuff that goes with it. Tremendous range. You can go almost 700 miles on a tank, if you can imagine that. And the torque from the diesel just coming off the line and, and when you're just out driving around is fantastic. I can't say enough good things about those cars. Wow. Okay, great. I mean, I... It makes me happy, Eric, to hear you happy about something in the automobile industry. <laughs> it's just it's just heartbreaking, for, not only yeah. for any a normal person to see what's going on, but to know that a car enthusiast like you feels this with a particularly yeah. intense pain. So I'm glad to hear some joy. <laughs> yeah, well, I just wish that, you know I wish that Volkswagen hadn't been so roasted over the coals by the government about this cheating stuff to the extent that it's not offering these vehicles anymore new. You can't buy current 2018 or 2019 Volkswagens with the diesel engine. And that's a shame because they really were brilliant. And as far as the cheating goes, if you look into this, you'll find that it's equivalent to, uh, you know, you see a radar trap up ahead and you got your radar detector on so that you avoid the the speed cop with his radar gun. Uh, These cars, they emitted fractionally more of a prohibited compound called oxides of nitrogen, literally fractional. 
the differences are infinitesimal. And really, Volkswagen's true crime was having affronted the authority of the government. And that's why the government has been so vindictive and vicious toward Volkswagen over this, not because those cars were polluting. Well, there's a surprise. All right. Well, listen, folks, you got to check out epautos.com, ericpetersautos.com. The uh, quick version is epautos.com. There's nobody out there doing what Eric is doing as a libertarian car guy. And I will tell you that, as I've told you before, I make a monthly contribution to Eric. At the time I made it, it was the highest monthly contribution he allowed, but it's way too low. He has to allow higher monthly contributions. I was prepared to give him more. But I didn't have the option to. So hint, hint, Eric. Some of us would actually like to. Fixed. Has it? Okay. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And if people want to, we have two options. You can go through PayPal, of course. And the other alternative is just you can send it in the mail. Uh, money orders, checks, whatever. I've got the address on the site. All they have to do is click on the donate button and it'll give them all the instructions. Well, this is a case where we say we have to remember that as libertarians, we say, well, in a free society, these things that we like would be voluntarily funded. Okay, well, let's start inching our way toward that right now. What Eric is doing is extremely valuable and important. So do as I do and support him over at epautos.com. Thanks, Eric. As always, we'll get you back. We've got some more uh, news to discuss. Thanks again. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. All right, folks. Now, tomorrow, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, comes to the Tom Woods show. And um, this follows my interview on Reason TV conducted by Matt himself that came out about a week or so ago. And if you haven't seen that, first of all, if you were on my email list, I mailed you a note about it. But if you haven't seen that, make an effort to watch it. Just go to YouTube and type in Reason Tom Woods and it'll come up. It was a great, great conversation and it's the kind of conversation that uh, hasn't been happening for quite a long time. And I'm glad to see that it is happening. So we're going to continue the happiness and friendliness with a conversation with Matt Welch tomorrow. Then some other fun things coming up I have in store for you that you're just going to really love over the next couple of weeks. Even while I'm gone on the Contra Cruise, by the way, I leave this coming weekend. I'm speaking to you right now. It is the middle of the week. It's, uh, I guess, October, what? Uh, I don't even know what the date is. The 17th, maybe? The I don't even know. I think it's the 17th of October. So this coming Saturday, I fly out to San Diego. The following day, we have the Mexican Riviera Cruise, our third Contra Cruise. But even while I'm gone, you're going to have your Tom Woods Show episodes coming out. And you will have a Contra Krugman episode recorded on board the ship. And it will be released while we are still sailing as if to put an exclamation mark after the technology that makes this possible. It's just great. So anyway, make sure you've subscribed at tomwoods.com slash iTunes because that makes me happy and it means you get all the episodes delivered to you automatically. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. 